In 2001, before Joe Rogan became the famous podcaster that he is today, he hosted a show called Fear Factor. And it was a show that, well, it, it really challenged even the viewers, let alone the participants of the various demonstrations throughout the show. The show was geared towards pushing per, a person to the absolute limit concerning their fear, finding out what they were most fearful of and then subjecting them to that particular uh, stimuli. Now, again, it's kind of cathartic, isn't it, in a, in a way, but it's also very concerning. They would bury people alive, they would trap people underwater, make them eat things that would make a billy goat sick. They would put them in a box and pour garbage cans full of cockroaches on top of them and so forth until they screamed and gave up and wanted to be released from the particular situation. But the show demonstrated that fear could be exploited. Fear could be used to motivate people to do certain things. And over the last two years, we've seen our population motivated and uh, exploited and their fear uh, giving them individuals who are doing this the control that they wanted to obtain over a large populace, a large society. We've also discovered in the last two years that many people of our nation are very fearful people. Whenever you have a crisis such as a pandemic or war, etc., you find that these crises often exploit weaknesses within the individual that are already there. And these crises, of course, bring things to the surface, and that's what we've seen over the last two years. Fear is a very powerful motivator. It's a, a powerful emotion. Dr. Mark McDonald wrote a book that I would encourage you to read. Some have read it in our church already and were really fascinated by its conclusions. And he documented uh, for us, he's a psychiatrist fellowship in um, UCLA. And he looked at the way the American people responded to the pandemic, and I should say more specifically to the political um, approach to the pandemic and discovered that we were truly the United States of fear. And this fear was manipulated. It was exploited. And it was used to the advantage of some. As Christians, we need to understand that fear, of course, is a reality. We call it a natural emotion. And when I say that, I don't think as Christians we fully understand what that means. So this morning I want to show you that we actually have a glimpse into the origin of fear. The Bible tells us clearly when fear was first experienced by a human. And seeing this first example of fear, we can learn a lot about fear and in so doing, we can overcome fear. There are many theologians throughout the centuries who have believed that there is a connection between a person's personal emotion and spirit, the spiritual world. It is interesting to me that when we discover the first time that fear was ever experienced by a human being, it was significantly connected to their spiritual standing before God. Whenever you have a first occasion, to study that first occasion, you know, uh, the, the very 
epicenter of its creation, of its origin, you can learn a lot about a subject. Whenever we try to define words, we always look to find when that word was first used. When we try to understand man, we look to the very first experiences of man to discover how, why man reacts the way that he or she does. But the Bible gives us insight to the very first time a human experienced fear. And we find this occasion in Genesis chapter 3. Turn there with me, if you will. We will discover that fear is the first emotion that is listed after the fall of man. And we're going to learn by this occasion what constitutes fear and how to overcome it. If we notice that fear is a response and it is a, it's derived based on previous events, we will be able then to understand that as believers, why we believe that this construct of faith over fear is true. Why did the writers of the Old Testament say that, I will not fear, but I will trust the Lord? And at the end, I'm going to take you to an incredibly powerful verse in the New Testament. That when the subject of fear is discussed, this verse is always quoted in its individualism. And then I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you back to look at the context of that verse and see how much that idea is connected to what we will read here this morning. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then their eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord, called, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. So the very first thing that we discover about fear is that it was first experienced immediately after the fall 
of man. Now we're going to talk about the fear in which Adam experienced and why he experienced it in just a moment. But let us know that, of course, fear did not have any place within the garden prior to the fall. There was no need to fear in an environment of pure perfection. Fear is a result of the fall. So when we call fear a natural emotion, it's a natural emotion to one who exists after the fall. Does that make sense? When we use the word natural, we need to be very careful that we don't simply just negate its application or its definition. When we talk about natural, let us understand that we are talking about a spiritual condition that exists after the fall. Okay? Often when we use the word natural to describe behavior, we do it in a manner of saying, well, it's just natural to one to do such a thing. That's just natural to them. It's natural for them to be fearful. It's natural for them to be you know, anxiety-ridden. It's natural for someone to worry. It's natural for someone to be tempted with physical lust and etc. But let's think about that for a moment. Though that may be natural, it is natural to one who has still who still is existing in the state before the regeneration and being born again. Because when I read the New Testament, God asks, asks us to walk in a supernatural way, right? No longer governed by the lusts of the flesh, but by the governance of the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, then we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul made it clear this way, that there are works of the flesh, and then there are fruit of the Spirit. And they are diametrically opposed one to another. So when I use the word natural, let us be careful that we are not justifying something that God has called sin just because it's part of our natural fleshly appetite. Whenever Satan tempts someone, or whenever we are tempted by those things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those temptations are often geared to play upon and to exploit our natural appetites. For example, I don't have to make much of a case to say that we live in a sexually charged society, right? You can't go anywhere without being confronted with something that brings you to that subject. It's a natural desire. God gave us the desire to have physical intimacy with, within a relationship. He, decided, he described very carefully and prescribed to us how that should be fulfilled between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, there aren't other options, guys. Let's, let's just end that debate right now, okay? Those psychologists want to tell us that there are 121 different genders. Bible says male and female. So let's be very clear about that. They are to leave mother and father, cleave together as husband and wife, and within that covenant relationship, enjoy the physical intimacy that God has designed for us to enjoy. 
the world comes around and says, those pleasures shouldn't be kept within those parameters and those boundaries. If it feels good, do it. As long as you quote-unquote love a person, and that, I, I use the air quotes there because we, nobody knows what that means anymore, right? People fall in and out of love. You know, my wife and I, we, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to confess something. We're binge-watching The Love Boat from the 70s, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's how desperate we are <laughs> for good television, uh, but Gopher kills me, okay? He just cracks me up. But that show is already filthy in many regards. And they, you can see the saturation of the ideas of the world even you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Even though today it would be, it, it's on MeTV and it seems harmless. Those ideas are still there. And they are slowly eroding away until we come to 2022, where now you can't even turn on a Disney show without being indoctrinated by woke agendas. They made a new episode of the Cheaper by the Dozen. And it was so woke that you could see them literally checking the boxes as you were going because they had to address every single social issue within it. And by the end of the story, you totally lost what the uh, story was all about. The world is trying to frame sexuality in its image, pulling us from God's desired plan. We justify intimacy between two people because we quote-unquote love each other. Because even engaged couples entering into physical intimacy before they're married is a sin before God. And yet, people do it because we've been saturated by our society and we feel that it's really not that big of a deal in some cases. The reason I say all of this is because what is natural is being exploited by the world in which we live in, so we must be very careful not to use this word natural as a justification for sin, if that makes sense. So now we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and fear is now brought forward. They hid from God because they were fearful. They hid from God because they knew that they were naked. All of these things are indications of what has changed uh, in the life of Adam and Eve after their fall from the state of perfection to the state of, um, you know, uh, fallen man. And in it, we see the conception and the manifestation of fear. Now, what were they afraid of? It says we were fearful because we were naked. Well, what does that mean? Is it simply realize, did they realize that they were without clothes? Well, in the garden, they were the only two there, right? They were husband and wife. It was the first couple God created. For them to see their nakedness uh, between themselves wasn't necessarily wrong. But they use this word. Now, the book of Genesis is written after the fact by Moses. 
He's bringing in language that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to bring in to indicate what had occurred in the garden at the time of the fall. The Hebrew word that is used here for naked, we must understand what it means to understand why they were afraid. And we get more of an understanding from verse 7, if you look at there with me. It says, Then their eyes uh, of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves covering. This is where the Hebrew words are so important. The word here that is used here is spelled E-R-U-M-M-I-M, irerium. And it does not signify merely the state of being unclothed. That word is very similar. It starts with an A, A A-R-U-M-M-I-M, arimium. But the state of a shameful and guilty conscience resulting from sin. This nakedness is showing and demonstrating that something has changed. Their consciousness has been corrupted. They truly were given the knowledge of good and evil, but not in the manner in which they thought they would be given it. They also didn't understand that making them like God was actually evil in the sight of God because they couldn't control the knowledge in which they were going to be given. And as a result, it severed them from their relationship with God that, of course, was forged in perfection. So all that we are experiencing here is an absolute consequence of the fall of man. And hearing God's voice call out to them, their fear was generated because they couldn't cover the change that had occurred within them. They couldn't rectify the change on their own. They couldn't just hide it from God with fig leaves or hiding from God behind trees. It was open and exposed to the reality of God's judgment. And of course, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, you realize very quickly that God says that if they did eat of these trees, they would surely die. So there's a fear now that God is going to punish them for what they have done. I was afraid. I hid myself. We tried to cover ourselves because change has occurred. They felt the separation. They understood the anxiety. They understood how they were alone now in this all. And as a result, they also realized that they could do nothing to rectify what has happened and what has occurred. And so hearing God's voice, they became fearful as God called out to them. In a hermeneutics class that I took on discovering how to interpret the Bible, one of the questions that I had was the question of tonality. How do you read verses when you read them? What tone do you read them or hear in your mind when you read them within the Bible? 
And let me give you an example. This is one of my favorite examples. Because initially, some commentators years ago, centuries ago, felt that God's call to them was that of a harsh judge. When God said to them, Adam, where are you? Is that the way you read it in the Bible? Does the Bible give you that evidence that God is angry with his creation? That God is mad at them? That they would then infer from that anger in his voice that pending judgment was imminent? Or do you hear it as a loving father calling out to them, Adam, where are you? When we read the Bible, we must be careful that we don't bring our own emotional baggage into the reading of Scripture. That we don't read into verses such as this our own personal frustrations with the world around us or with people near to us. We must be careful that we represent God properly. As Moses discovered the hard way, didn't he? As, going, as they were traveling through the wilderness, God said to Moses, simply speak to the rock. But Moses, in his frustration with the people, decided to smite the rock with his staff, prohibiting his entrance into the promised land. For misrepresenting God, he was held back. We need to be careful that we don't subject verses to our own emotional Uh, predetermined bias. Because I believe the evidence from this passage shows him not as an angry judge, but as a loving father. It It wasn't that God was unaware of what had happened and what had occurred. It wasn't that God was unaware. Now, there are some theologians who believe that God was still developing in his all knowledge and so forth, and he just didn't know where they were and what they were doing. Really? That's a pretty small picture of God, and the Bible surely doesn't justify that type of progressional development within God. He was calling them. He was calling them out in hopes that they would come to him, confess to him, that he may then forgive them. Why do I believe that? Because of the dialogue that comes next. Not only did he ask for them as he was walking in the cool of the day, And he said to them, Adam, where are you? And so he heard the voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? It's a dialogue. God is reasoning with Adam in hopes that Adam would bring forward what he had done. Now, Adam, of course, as a result of the fall, learned the blame game, didn't he? Well, it was the wife that you gave me, God, so really it's on your shoulders, you know. She made me do it. Then he turned to Eve. Of course, Eve said the serpent made me do it. And of course, the blame game started. But God was simply trying to call Adam to repentance. I believe that the greatest act of God's grace is found also here by him strolling through the garden and calling his fallen creation back to him. 
He didn't need to do that. He wasn't under any obligation to do that, and yet God did it. But as a result of the fall and of God's call, fear arose to the surface. And as a result, that fear to hide shame and guilt, separation, the change that had occurred within them after the fall, and the fear of punishment led them to hide themselves from the Lord. He was fearful because he was naked. We've changed, God. Something's wrong. We have truly died from that perfect image that you have created us in. And now we are separated from you in a way we never anticipated. What does God mean when he creates someone in his image? There's a lot of debate about that. And I agree with those who believe that like God, we are a triune being. We are physical. We are spiritual. We are emotional beings. In representation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we fell, the spiritual died within us. The flesh became the dominant entity within us. And we therefore pursued the flesh to uh, dictate to the, um, uh, the, the emotional who we are and what we want. And as a result, that spiritual death separated us from God. And as, as a result of that, we then, of course, pursued the lusts of the flesh throughout the history of man. As man went and used the knowledge of good and evil for evil purposes, because man was incapable of governing themselves... It's interesting when you consider that, when you read New Testament passages, how often Paul refers to this idea that man should be governed no longer by the flesh, but now by the Spirit of God in the renewed and restored relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and the acquisition of the Holy Spirit residing in them. But we know that we are in a battle, aren't we? That the spirit wrestles against the flesh. The flesh wrestles against the spirit. And as a result, that war, that tension continues until we are made whole in Christ at his second coming. One scholar wrote concerning the uh, inauguration of fear here in the garden. He says, in addition to shame came another consequence, that is a fear. When the couple heard God walking in the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and God among the trees of the garden. Adam said, I am afraid. Sin causes fear and hiding from God. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they set God aside and focused on their desires. But acting autonomously, they did not mean escaping from God. The Holy Creator came looking for them, and for the first time, with sin on their minds, they were afraid. 
The great scholar F.F. Bruce stated this, that the turning away from God begins with fear and a guilty conscience and a pretense. Fear is the beginning of disobedience in many occasions to the direction of God. We have example after example after example of individuals who, rather than proceeding in faith, chose to proceed in fear and not to fulfill God's call upon their life. And there's no better example of this than the 12 spies going into the promised land. Ten came out and said that the land is too treacherous, there are giants within the land, and we'll never be able to conquer those that are within it, even though God had already promised them the victory. Two came out, Joshua and Caleb, and stated, no, it's perfectly, uh, it's suited for us. We are going to conquer it. We are going to uh, take it just as God had said. And here is a a bunch of grapes for us to remember what kind of great land it is that God is giving us. The people, though, rather than listening to Joshua and Caleb, the minority, listened to the majority. And the majority of voices were screaming at the masses of people saying, it's too scary to go any further. We're going to die. We're going to lose it all. We might as well go back to Egypt. And as a result of that, God required them to wander for 40 years. You and I have to be very careful that our fears are not exploited by the majority because as Christians we know that we are often in the minority within any society. We can choose faith over fear, but that requires a very important element, the knowing of God. If I'm going to trust God in such a way to overcome fear, which is such a powerful and dangerous emotion in many cases... It will have to be the work of the Spirit working in and through me to do so. Because though it is a natural emotion and though it originated at the fall, the flesh is still plagued by its, uh, by its impact in my life, its influence in my life. But this is why Paul says that you as a Christian have been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given the Word of God to know who your God is. And what he is capable of doing. You know that you have already obtained victory. Now walk in it. Do not fear, but have faith. But that faith requires us to know God. And the only way for us to know God is to know his word. That's how he has revealed himself to us. That is through his word. Now let me make a distinction, if I may. Because I believe that there's a great distinction. That is, knowing God and knowing about God. Now you say, well, Pastor Eric, that just sounds like semantics to me. I believe it's vastly different, and let me explain why I do. Knowing God means that you have personal knowledge of God. You know who He is, you know the promises that He has made, and you have seen the fulfillment of Him keeping those promises within your life. And all this brings about faith, the hearing of the Word of God. That's what Paul was saying there. It's not only contained to the moment of salvation, it also continues on in our sanctification. The Word of God working through the Holy Spirit. I should say vice versa. Reverse that. The Holy Spirit working through the Word of God brings us closer to God and back to the image 
that he desired us to obtain or to maintain from the beginning. But knowing about God, it means that you have secondhand knowledge of. Or it's simply academic. It's not practical. It's a knowledge that you obtain one way or another, but never plays out into wisdom in your life. And you see this difference in the Bible of individuals who had knowledge of God or, or had knowledge about God or of God. I know God. And therefore, I'm confident that God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, will not change. If he was faithful yesterday, he will be faithful tomorrow. There's a distinct difference. But fear will often be the precursor to us turning away from God. So if we are truly going to combat fear, we need to understand that fear is a complete consequence of the fall. And the only way to rectify any of the consequences of the fall is in and through Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to take. If we are going to overcome fear, we have to first and foremost begin by walking in a right relationship with God through Christ. That's how it all begins. I can't even begin to deal with the emotion of fear unless I first begin to deal with my relationship with God. Because fear originated from the fall. The emotion wasn't felt until then. The emotion wasn't experienced. Whatever the catalyst that was that brought it about, here it was the call of God upon one who couldn't hide their sin from God. If I'm going to overcome fear by faith, It must begin with a right relationship with God. Now, what does that mean? For a person who doesn't know the Lord, they need to come to know the Lord. They need to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They need to experience the new birth within them that only God through Christ can produce. We call it being born again, born of anew, born from above. A new life that is started. That's the beginning of this restoration. That's the beginning of dealing with fear through Christ. But there's also a second. Because believers struggle with fear also, don't they? Fear can overwhelm them. Fear can cause them to make decisions that they regret later. So how do we deal with that? First and foremost, we have to make sure that we are not allowing sin to continue to dwell in us but that we are dealing with it in and through Christ. When John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is easy to think that that verse applies to someone who doesn't know the Lord. Someone who isn't saved. But John clearly is saying that to believers. So if I'm going to deal with my emotion of fear, I need to make sure as a believer in Jesus Christ that there isn't sin that is reigning in my heart and in my life. There isn't something that's hidden behind the doors of, the, uh, of my mind. There isn't something within my heart that I haven't dealt with through the Word of God and through confession and through prayer before God. That's where it first begins. I must repent of these things. 
But then it goes on to learning about God and knowing God through the reading of his word and watching him work throughout your life. That's the second stage. Now, the first one leading to the second one will lead to the third one. And that is a trust. And that brings us to the point where the psalmist would say, I shall not fear for I will trust the Lord. We can't enter into that trust if we are walking in sin, if we, are, if we don't know the God in whom we serve, that trust is hard to come by, isn't it? It's hard to rely on because we don't know. We, one thing that fear does within our hearts and minds is bring us to a place of insecurity time and time and time again. And insecurity always leads to a vulnerability within the life of the believer. So once I make sure that my heart is right, now, trust me, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us will be perfect before that day that we are in heaven before the Lord. I'm talking about the sin that a believer carries within them that they know is wrong but are unwilling to deal with. It seems to be a giant in their Christian life. Something that they have allowed themselves to get into bondage with. You know, though Paul says, you know, all things are lawful to me, but he says all things are not profitable for me and I will be brought under the bondage of none. That's where we begin. And once we deal with that, we begin to learn and to know our God. And those two can overlap. Once we confess it, we may not have the strength and the energy to overcome it at that moment. But once we confess it and we begin to know God and we begin to read his word, I like to call this uh, the theology of scrubby bubbles. Do you remember scrubby bubbles? I thought that was one of the neatest commercial when I was a kid. When my mom would spray the bathtub, I would always look to see if the bubbles really had those little brushes underneath them spinning as they went throughout the bathtub. And I said, Mom, I think our can is defective. Return it to the store. But do you know the Word of God works like that on our mind and in our heart? It's by the washing of the Word. As we read the Word of God, it begins to wash our minds, wash our hearts. The imagery, the events, the experiences, and so forth of the past life can just pollute our mind before God, even though we've been forgiven of those things. And be... God begins to wash those things away through the water of the Word of God throughout our life. And as we experience that cleansing from the God's Word, then we begin to know the God in whom we serve. And like the writers of the Old Testament, we then can have the confidence and the faith, I shall not fear, for I will trust the Lord. Now, I can't end before addressing one of the most popular verses in the New Testament concerning fear. It's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. John writes, he says, There is no fear in love. Now, how many times have you heard this? Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
How many of you have quoted that to yourself when you've experienced fear in your Christian life? Okay, you just don't want to confess it before, before us all. We all have. When I first became a Christian, I can't tell you the number of t-shirts that have had this verse on it. In fact, I went over to someone's house one time and I saw this verse on their salt and pepper shaker. I don't know what they're fearful of what they're, when they're eating. I didn't know if God was calling me to fast at that moment or what. But I want to take a step back. And considering everything that we've learned here at this moment, that fear was originally generated by the call of God upon Adam's heart due to the fact that he had sinned before God and was fear in fear of punishment for that sin. Notice what John says if we take a step back and look at it in its context, 17 through 19. Notice this. Love has been perfected among us in this way, that we may have boldness in what? The day of judgment. Notice what he's saying here. This love that overcomes fear is the fear of judgment in the life of the believer. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that unlike Adam, you don't have to be afraid of the judgment of God, you who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he is saying here. For this love of Christ, this perfect love, has cast out fear of the day of judgment. You don't have to fear it as a believer in Jesus Christ. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, We love Him because He first loved us. That's what John's saying here. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam succumbed to the temptation, Christ resisted it there in the wilderness. Went to the cross and on the third day rose again. He is now the risen Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And that in and through Him... Our love for Christ can eliminate our fear of judgment because the payment for our sins has been satisfied in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So I don't have to fear. And why do we love Christ? Verse 18. Because He first loved us. How did He love us? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not die but have everlasting life. That's the love that God showed us. If we are going to overcome fear, let us understand that fear is a result of the fall. It is a natural emotion which natural man uh, you know, carries within him. It's part of our flesh even though we have been Uh, born again and the flesh warring against the spirit until the day that Jesus Christ comes. But through Christ, the reconciliation of all things has occurred that man, through Christ, the one true mediator between us and God, Christ Jesus, not only does he take care of the spiritual aspects of restoration and atonement, 
and forgiveness. But here, the consequences of sin are also dealt with, that being fear, the fear of God, which we'll go into next time, understanding what does the Bible mean by the fear of God? And why is that fear good compared to the fear that we're talking about here that would hinder me from fulfilling what God would have for me? But understand that if we're going to deal with fear, we must do so through Christ. That's where it all begins. And here I believe we have a direct correlation between the emotional aspects of man's being and the spiritual world. The word psyche means spirit. So a psychologist or a psychiatrist are dealing with the spiritual aspect of a man. That's what that word means. However, they define that word. But we know that no man can heal our spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins in everything that we experience. It begins in Christ. And if we're going to deal with fear, we're going to have to do it through Christ. But I don't want you to forget this. Though all the elements of fear were experienced by Adam, the feeling of alone, the insecurity, the anxiety, the change, the confrontation that was going to occur with God and even death itself, those echo still today within the emotion of fear in one way or another. If we are not going to allow the fear that we carry within us to be exploited, we must confront that fear with the reality of the risen Christ. And then we can truly proceed with faith over fear.